Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. 2021, uh, this is Series 4 and we're in Session 1. It's Thursday the 18th of February 2021. So welcome back to the Echo Network. I'm really, um, really pleased to see you all this morning. Uh, today we're launching this series with uh, a topic of understanding the vaccine rollout part one. So I think we're becoming familiar with patterns as a network. This is our fourth series and three of the four series began just as a wave was building. Um, so last year, many of you uh, called out for us not to mention a third wave and um, we all had different opinions about whether it would happen and many of us just couldn't face the thought of it. I think it's probably fair to say. And here we are now, we're taking stock of how effective this short, sharp lockdown was and perhaps feeling maybe a little bit more sense of urgency about rolling out these vaccines. We've had several months to process information, or probably more likely seven weeks, several weeks, I guess, the information about this new suite of vaccines, um, and, and really just in the last few weeks, had time to kind of process and consider our role in this multifaceted um, Australian vaccine plan. So we'll keep this morning's didactic short in content because we have um, really um, spent a lot of time, for those of you who tuned into the Town Hall series, it wasn't Project Echo, it was separate, but I think it's a fantastic um, a trove of content that you can dip back in. We'll pop the links now into the chat for the audio recordings for those Town Hill se uh, Hall sessions, and you can access the full video as well through the Westwick PHN site. So if you want to get a little bit more into orientation into the um, the whole plan, do dive back in there. I think it's really useful content that we're going to spend some time now um, processing through the platform of Project Echo. So over the coming weeks, we'll be discussing our roles as part of this plan. Uh, for residential aged care, for other vulnerable populations, and indeed our own emerging models of vaccine delivery in primary care. So each week we'll be inviting you to puzzle what might work for your team in your context and with your populations. And this morning we are going to kick off with a case presentation um, of a theoretical model for 1B. So I'm really excited this morning um, to bring you a really nice uh, GP-led uh, content for us to um, discuss this morning. So I'm Bianca Forrest, I'm a GP, and I'll be facilitating today's meeting and I'd like to acknowledge the work of our Project ECHO team coordinators and also to welcome back to Zach Hollow, our um, medical student note taker who's now an intern and congratulations Zach on becoming a doctor and um, Zach's juggling his intern responsibilities with um, supporting Project ECHO with note taking so thank you and welcome back Zach. Um, so what's on the agenda today? We've always, as always, we're going to be kicked off with a health pathways update by Dr. Kate Graham, who's the um, lead, uh, co the COVID advisor and, and um, lead editor of COVID pathways uh, uh, in and amongst her other things. Um, thank you so much to Rachel Cowan. Rachel's um, uh, been called in kind of last minute, I guess. So Rachel's booked in for next week, but Deb was taking today, but had to be called away. So thank you so much, Rachel, for making time into a really busy time for you um, to bring us an update and to kick off our series. So we're really pleased to have you, our trusted ID um, team member back with Project ECHO. Um, we've got a service system presentation. So thank you so much to John Henderson, who's put together a wonderful um, presentation about the model of care that's being considered um, by Bannockburn Surgery. And um, so that's what we're going to spend a, quite a bit of our time this morning discussing. Um, on panel, we've got Dr. Jeff Urquhart and Miss Linda Govan. So I guess, um, again, something we haven't really done in ECHO is maybe highlight our panellists but as we do throw around a discussion I think it's positioning those people as people who I'll always throw to for clarifying questions and recommendations um, because they represent some expertise in the topic that John's putting forward. Um, Jeff's also going to
going to pop another hat on today. Top of his digital health, um, he's got a late-breaking news announcements about the first steps of the rollout. So we'll also hear a bit from Jeff with his GPLU hat on. And we're going to finish off with an update from Ms. W uh, Westwick PHN CEO, CEO to provide us an update at this time. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Kate Graham to bring us a Health Pathways update. Thank you, Kate. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be back again at this time of day, and it's even lovelier that I'm getting the kids ready for school in the background. It's given me much excitement this morning after the past couple of days. Um, So in Health Pathways world, we have been working really, really hard behind the scenes at the moment um, to get things ready for a nationally consistent COVID vaccine pathway that I'm writing in collaboration with one of the New South Wales editors. So what you may have seen already that's up on Health Pathways is the information page. Um, And the information page has got a really, really detailed and comprehensive list of resources that doesn't really exist anywhere else at the moment due to the sort of differences between state requirements and federal requirements. So if you head to the federal sites, you're not going to get the state-based information and vice versa. Um, So come along to Health Pathways. We've also got links to education resources, not just for the COVID um, vaccine training itself, but in addition, we've got links to sort of things like anaphylaxis training, if you want to get that up to date um, for staff members before starting vaccination. Um, So one of the things with the state-based training, it's um, we've got some links in there for people who are in the emergency authorised workforce. So practitioners who may not normally give vaccinations, so registered nurses who aren't nurse immunisers, for example. Um, We've got an update um, this week for PPE guidance in relation to sort of the recent cases that have occurred. So checking that out, just making sure that you're all over the top of um, what you need to be doing in practice, which includes the return of the face shield. Um, So we'll update that again Um, if things change in that regards. Um, Some of the really important resources that I just wanted to flag quickly um, in terms of preparation and being able to prepare for vaccination um, in advance, even if your practice isn't currently providing it, um, are going to be things like having translated resources available, resources for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, and also really importantly at this point in time is having a look at the aged care links and resources if you're affiliated with working in any aged care facility because that's going to help you and your patients and any questions you're having from family members. Um, We've got two other pages which hopefully will be released um, Monday or Tuesday next week depending on how quickly edits happen and we get um, sort of guidance on those. Um, They're going to be the preparing for COVID-19 vaccination, which is not only your practice resources, but talking through things like um, preparing patients for vaccination, talking with patients about it. And then we've got the COVID-19 vaccination procedure, which is more the clinical side of things, looking at sort of consent, um, looking through side effects, management of those kind of things. So we're going to be putting in guidance about the tricky zones. So you know, when you've got somebody with issues post-vaccination, things like fevers that occur, when should you get them tested? And while that's going to be sort of different at times, depending on state public health advice, um, we'll put that guidance in there. So that's all from me, but there will be more updates as time goes on. I really want to encourage people to keep going back to the resource pages because we're updating them daily at the moment. 
So thanks. And back to you guys. Thank you so much, Kate. That's fantastic. And um, and also, Gemma's put a link in the chat. There's a con- lot, lots of new Commonwealth resources. Um, so Prioritising Aged Care has got um, some Commonwealth resources. But, yes, thank you so much, Kate, and um, fantastic to have that repository updated so regularly. Um, okay, so I'm going to hand over to you, Rachel Cowan. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me along, uh, Echo team. It's fantastic to be uh, involved and happy new year. Um, I, I assume I can still say that. Um I thought it was really interesting when I was going back and looking at some things recently that are just looking at the number of cases and things uh, that had previously happened. And I'd been giving a number of talks over time and I just thought that this was an interesting slide in terms of 75,000 cases and now we're what a difference a year makes and that we're looking at uh, pretty much a year to the day of that present that uh, initial presentation with now 109 and a half million cases and 2.4 million deaths uh, worldwide and 192 uh, cases, uh, sorry, countries actually involved. Um, obviously, the, the key things at the moment, like there's been a lot of things that have come out and now currently the, the issues really are around uh, the current variants and the variants of concern. And there are three out there at the moment, um, one being the United Kingdom one, which is the B117, um, the specific mutation which goes across all three of them, interestingly, is the N501Y, um, and that's certainly the one that's been causing us trouble currently. Uh, there's also the South African variant and the Brazilian variant as well, and the, and the issues are is that with the number of these changes, excuse the quality of the picture, it was actually a screenshot from a talk that Brett Sutton gave, um, so kudos to him for giving it. Um, a lot of the issues around it is, is that we know that the viral load is actually higher. We know that the transmission appears to be much more efficient. And we also know that when we sort of the incubation period around sort of when people were infectious, we thought the incubation period and most people would get symptoms at about day four, day five, really about day five, uh, predominantly as a median average. Um, and therefore we took the, their infectivity for 48 hours before that. The concern now is that, that that sort of incubation period is actually a lot shorter and they're becoming um, more infectious sort of a day or two after they've actually been infected themselves. And so that in terms of the person realising they're sick, they've already um, transmitted to other people and that has a bearing on what the Department of Health have done as far as their listing of primary close contacts and secondary close contacts. And I will go back into that. Um, there's also um, theoretical uh, reduced antibody binding and immune protection. And, and so obviously that have concerns around the vaccine and whether the vaccines are still efficacious. Um, and, uh, and that's particularly true for the South African and Brazilian um, variants at the moment. But obviously with AstraZeneca, there's some concerns about um, the um, UK variant as well. So just very briefly, because I think yeah, this is being done to death, we know there were 17 cases linked to the Tallarine Holiday Inn. Uh, there was a nebulized, nebulizer used by a returned UK travia, traveller, which had a confirmed UK variant. Three cases were actually linked to that, um, authorised officer, a resident and a food and beverage worker. There have been a number of major spreading events in relation to that. So we know that one of the health uh, care workers that actually worked at the Holiday Inn, not in this initial cluster, but thought to have been infected at around the same time as the third and the fourth, went to a private event. And she had been tested the day sort of before she'd gone to the private event. So on the sixth, 
private event, I think, was on the 7th and she became unwell on the 10th. The issue is that they've gone back and looked at it and looked at it on a different platform and they've seen that she's actually been a weak positive, which is something that wasn't picked up previously before. And it certainly is something that can happen in terms of false negative and false positive, especially in low prevalence and uh, in the community. We also know about the Terminal 4 Brunetti's uh, incident. Um, psychiatric units are also someone that had gone from working or I think had been one of the contacts at the private event, had gone on to work at the Alfred Hospital North and Hospital and Broadmeadows inpatient psychiatric unit. So that had quite a bearing in terms of um, protecting the staff and also protecting the clients as well. Um, and then the one that's probably most relevant to this region was the Victorian market and where um, a group of um, students and, and staff went down to, to uh, visit Victoria market and happened to be in the same area at exactly the same time as the person who was positive uh, using the same facilities. And so they've actually all been placed in um, quarantine. And interestingly, also the families have been placed in quarantine because obviously you can't quarantine um, sort of 10 and 11 year olds away from their family. So so lockdown 3.0 happened. We know that there were 25 active cases at the time and 17 uh, linked to that um, uh, that uh, outbreak. Um, part of the thing is, is that part of the release was really around having an enormous number of testing and being confident that those tests were actually negative. And also there'd been no onward, appeared to be no onward transmission at this time. So how are they doing it differently? Um, now with the new variants, instead of having 10 days of um, isolation, it's actually 14 days of isolation. And then there's a number of um, uh, testing, uh, testing uh, times during that period as well. So not just the when you're infected and at day 11, oh, sorry, to, we'd only, we used to test them um, previously, but we I think we are now just to make sure everything's okay. Uh, primary close contact, so that is uh, contact to a confirmed case or to a high risk site. Um, and previously, it had been very much around 15, 15, 15 minutes face to face um, contact. Uh, and now it's it's a lot broader around that. So even being in the same high risk site, because we know that that yeah, this is. Um, much more infectious and we're not quite sure how the disease is um, progressing through the community at the moment in terms of transmission. Um, those people will quarantine for 14 days from last exposure and that's absolutely not negotiable. The interesting thing that they're doing at the moment is the secondary close contact. So what they're doing is so in terms of secondary close contacts and it depends on the secondary close contacts. Um, so in particular, like in the in the Ballarat exposure group, um, the secondary close contact were family. Um, if what can happen with those secondary close contacts, if those if that primary close contact can be separated, or the secondary close contact they can be separated across, and that primary close contact has a negative result, um, then as long as the secondary close contact has been moved away they can actually go about their business. If they can't be separated, as in the, the Ballarat um, outbreak isolation group or quarantine group, they actually need to remain in isolation for the exact same time as the, the primary close contact. So that's not a, close, a confirmed case, but a, a, a primary close contact. So it's kind of putting a double ring of steel around it because, the, because as 
as I was saying, that the transmission is so much quicker than previous and we just want to make sure everything's safe. Um, the regional public health units have been stood up, uh, which is fantastic, and it is been incredibly difficult in terms of finding staff and appointing staff. The two major activities at the moment are obviously um, increasing the contact tracing capabilities and that involves the training through the Department of Health um, and uh, is a, it's and learning the systems and the programs and stuff around and associated with that becoming an authorised officer, that's, that's an enormous undertaking. And the vaccination program, I think, has been an absolute logistical nightmare. Um, and it's just around the Pfizer stuff. So although it looks like you guys don't feel like you're getting enough information and are kind of being left in the lurch, you're not being left in the lurch, you are part of the, that part of the process and part of the thought. Uh, and and the, the ongoing plans, but the focus at the moment is around the Pfizer vaccine and getting the Pfizer vaccine. The fact that it's in the country now is absolutely fantastic. Um, the thing is, is that we everybody was planning for it to be rolled out sort of early March, and we've been told that it needs to be rolled out as of next week. So the logistics around trying to work out how you immunise a thousand people all at once, get all the staff, the the Pfizer uh, mRNA vaccine you've all heard about in terms of the cold chain requirements you thaw it out you've actually got to reconstitute it within 10 minutes and then use it within you know a few hours so it's it the logistics around that has been unbelievable nightmare <laughs> and I'm not I'm only on the periphery hearing about it in terms of actually trying to get it organized and finding somewhere that's appropriate because you need everybody you've got to put 250 500 people through at one time you've got to find the logistics of where's the space where's the parking what do you do with that and you've got to park people for 15 to 30 minutes behind uh, after that one of the things that obviously has come out is the anaphylaxis concern. So um, it's about one in a hundred thousand at the moment. Then obviously that can be uh, concerning. If there are any significant issues around anaphylaxis, I believe there's actually going to be a central hub for those people for anaphylaxis to be done in more of a hospital setting rather than um, uh, remotely at all. The other thing is, is that Bowen Health has been made as a regional hub for the Pfizer vaccine and the rollout of the Pfizer vaccine across regionally as well, which is absolutely fantastic. So we know that it's very effective. The thing is, the new thing moving on to the AstraZeneca is the one that will be out in the community. Um, uh, it was originally thought to be only about 62% effective with two doses greater than 28 days apart. It's just been uh, registered, as you know, with the or approved by the TGA. And there's some interesting things around that is that very pre-printed data uh, in the Lancet actually shows that the efficacy is actually up around 95% if the doses are actually given three months apart. The problem is, is that there's a paucity of data around the enrolments in 65 year olds. And so that means that uh, the, the TGA have sort of said based on a case-by-case case basis, but we know that the people, they also looked at the antibody response as well, and um, we know that that's effective. So we think it's we think it's actually going to be okay, but we just don't know the data. And we know what's going to be really interesting is the data that's going to come out of um, people using it at the moment and in terms of the incidence of disease, whether it actually does have an effect on transmission and the severity of the disease as well um, ongoing. It's going to be quite fascinating to see over the next couple of months. Um, you've all seen this as far as the models and the Pfizer hubs and certainly 
phase 1A, which is the 1.4 million doses that have been going out, and then 1B, uh, which are the GPs will be involved in and the GP programs are being developed currently, as I mentioned. Um, so what can you do now? Should you recommend the vaccine? Absolutely. The thing is, is that although, yes, we could say we'll wait for the Pfizer vaccine, the thing is there's actually no guarantee around getting that at all. With the AstraZeneca vaccine, we know that initially it's all going to be international stock, but we're actually going to be making it ourselves and they're estimating about 50 million doses that will be made locally. So, um, the other thing is, is that, you know, having that time time spread three months apart makes it as efficacious as theoretically as is efficacious in the initial studies as the Pfizer vaccine, which is fantastic. The thing is you want to be able to get, you know, if you've got a 60% effective vaccine, you want to, and getting it to 60% of the population is better than 95% efficacy only to 4% of the population. So we know that, we need to, to get the vaccine out there. And if we have a third wave, if, if we don't have some sort of measure of, of temporizing the disease and making it less severe for the people that actually get it, we're going to be ending up in a world of trouble again. Um, and talk to the other thing that you can do, talk to your patients and their family members, work out, do they want, to, do they want the vaccination? Are they happy for that? allay any uh, concerns around side effects and anaphylaxis, work out whether your patients has an, have anaphylaxis um, and then gain the formal consent. That consent, even though if you do it and they don't get vaccinated for another two months, is still going to be valid. So this is something that you guys can be doing in the background at the moment. Um, and I will hand back to Bianca. So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. Um, thanks, everyone, and great to be coming from the back of my car, driving down <laughs> Western Highway. That's life. Um, I just want to say that the private um, RACFs are starting next week. Your um, facilities that you work with may have been contacted. That does not mean they are starting on Monday. We are working with Aspen, who's the provider, to try and ascertain who's going when and all of those things so that we can support you as much as possible with all of the processes that will need to sit behind this. Um, so it's Aspen. They will get their vaccine directly delivered to the facility. This is outside of the Pfizer 1A. So that's what we're hearing from the Commonwealth. Um, so we're working with that. No, no word yet on the EOIs. A reminder, it will be slow. It's not going to be a big bang theory with lots and lots of GP clinics coming online at the start. It will be slow. So, um, John, loving your work. Love Bannockburn. Lovely to be there the other week. Um, we're going to keep working with you with to try and answer some of those um, questions. But um, I really want to temper that, that it's not going to be everyone at the start. Um, and what we are saying is let's get the training underway for people. Um, you can get online to these various sites, do your training, have the conversations with your patients um, and start to think about consent, which your facilities, I'm sure, will be talking to you about how to make sure that um, your residents um, have had some conversations, how to deal with dementia, all of those sorts of things. So um, that's about it. That's all I want to say, Bianca. Thank you again for ECHO.
Thank you very much. Um, so as some of you would have seen the vaccination training slide up there and we'll send that information in our follow-up email. There's been a heap this morning. So great to be back with you guys. All of the things that have come through in the chat, the team are separating into ID questions and of course, rack questions. So these are our big topics. And, and you know, the pattern was last time we started with something general and we went straight to racks. Then we went to disability and we went through our kind of vulnerable population groups. And I can already see that's how this series is going to run. So um, seeing that that's what's coming through, we'll want to focus on, um, on models of care for residential aged care and what is the GP role. I'd love a case. So I don't know. I'm thinking, Mick, if you want to present next week, we'd love to hear from you, given that you're also at residential aged care. Um, who else is at residential aged care? And I'm alternating Geelong and Southwest with um, with Ballarat and the um, to make sure that we alternate. So I'd love to hear from someone way out, Horsham Hamilton way, Ballarat way. If you think you're going to be part of this rack rollout, consenting um, people, speaking with families, um, please get in touch with me. In fact, um, Gemma, throw my um, West Vic email email into the chat if you don't mind please just jump on and email me at any time if you want to present a case I'd love to hear from you this year I've got less time to be phoning around and begging people um, so I'd love it if you can bring it forward as you really will have recognized this morning something like what John's done I mean he has put in a lot of work but it has just been so rich and I think we'll keep diving into some of that content over the coming weeks and months I think the difference between Echo and um, some of these town halls we hear is that we're problem solving and you guys are the experts experts in it um, you know rather than us hearing from kind of you know top down what we need to go and do we're actually problem solving what we can bring to this puzzle so I hope that you're finding it um, useful and that you'll be part of um, presenting those cases for us to discuss um, I'm sorry I lingered there a bit I just really want to uh, I'd love for um, yeah you guys to come forward to me and let me know and I'd love to hear from you know new groups um, so get in touch. And uh, as I said, we'll be back with you next Thursday. Rachel will answer all your ID questions and she's put her email in the chat too, or you can pre-submit questions on our normal Echo page, or you can send them to my email as well and I'll field them out. And, um, and we'll tailor a, a really nice rack dedicated um, session for you for next week. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.